Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with scholar, writer, and speaker Sumbul Ali Karamali with host Erwin Keller. This TNS conversation titled The Muslim Next Door was co-sponsored by the Of One Soul campaign of the Interfaith Council of Sonoma County. I want to welcome everybody. I'm so thrilled that we have such a wonderful turnout today for this event. Um, I'm going to introduce Symbol in a moment, but I want to thank our co-sponsors, uh, our co-sponsor, who is the, which is the Of One Soul um, campaign, the Min Nafs Wahida campaign of the, Inter, of the Interfaith Council of Sonoma County. And I know many of you are here because you've been involved in the work of Of One Soul um, that started up just this year as a grassroots ad hoc response to some of the Islamophobic rhetoric that was already happening in the presidential campaign. Um, and that group came together and had an event here and has had several events since. And, um, and seems to still be motivating and mobilizing people. So I'm really grateful that you are here. I also want to thank other clergy who are here. I see Tara Steele, and I see Mordechai Miller, and I see Pat Moore. And there are probably more that I'm missing. But thank you all for being here. This is going to be uh, a wonderful time to sort of uh, do a couple of different things. One piece is uh, an opportunity to learn things about Islam that those of us who are not Muslim did not know. It's sort of an everything you wanted to know about Islam but didn't really have a good forum to ask it in. Um, and also to get a sense of what it is like to be not only Muslim in America but someone who ends up in a position of having to be a spokesperson and a talking head and a cultural translator. Um, because the need is there and we wish the need weren't there. So we're going to talk to Symbol not only about the stuff she knows, but also what the experience is like of doing the work that she does. So uh, I'm, I'd like to introduce Symbol, who is uh, a former colleague and an old friend and a former colleague of mine. We used to be lawyers together many, many years ago. Um, Symbol uh, Ali Karamali is a lawyer, scholar, and frequent spokesperson on matters of interest to Muslim Americans. Her first book, The Muslim Next Door, The Quran, The Media, and That Veil Thing, <laughs> was published in 2008 and was a bronze medal winner of the 2009 Independent Book Awards. The book appeared on the American Academy of Religions Islam section list as a recommended text for teaching Islam in classrooms, and on the Huffington Post's 11 must-read books by Muslim authors. Her second book, Growing Up Muslim, Understanding the Beliefs and Practices of Islam, is directed at broadening the understanding of middle and high schoolers. And both of these books, by the way, are available for purchase uh, by the door. Um, you can pick them up on your way out if you haven't already. Symbol is a regular contributor to the Huffington Post and a frequent speaker and writer on Islam-related topics. She's given hundreds of interviews in a variety of venues and media. She's been on the steering committee of Women in Islamic Spirituality and Equality and on the Muslim Women's Global Shura Council, both of which aim to promote women's rights and human rights from an Islamic perspective. In her free time, Symbol enjoys opera, whitewater rafting, reading fantasy literature, and watching Star Trek reruns with her family. And I should mention that we have, we have learned about each other today 
that Captain Kirk was the first crush for both of us. Yes. <laughs> so let's please welcome some Ali Karamali. <laughs> uh, I've never been introduced in quite that way before. <laughs> but Erwin was always a ham. So, yeah. So, <laughs> thank you very Something much. Something neither for of us me. eats, by the way. Um, <laughs> So welcome. It's so good to see you because it's been it's been decades. We haven't seen yes. each other since the early 1990s. Yes. And Although pl- you didn't really need to say that. <laughs> when you were a child, just, back when you were a child. <laughs> yes. And you've had this whole life we you know we were both unhappy lawyers and um and you've ended up having this very very different life. Um writing this book and becoming a spokesperson. And one of the things that um uh, and you're a scholar of Islamic law. And, and I want to mention that you didn't write this book because you were a scholar of Islamic law. Mm-hmm. You became a scholar of Islamic law in order to write this book. Mm-hmm. So tell us, what were, the, what, what, were, what were the factors that made you think this is a book that needs to be written? Okay, so can I, if I were to start way at the beginning, then I would have to put myself into context. So um, I just have to say that I grew up in Southern California at a time when actually I was the only Muslim that my friends knew. I was the only Muslim that my teachers had ever come across. Um, if they did know uh, sort of what I was, they often mixed me up with... Um, Malcolm X, not that I look like Malcolm X, but they, you know, they, they thought, oh, this, you must have the same uh, beliefs and rhetoric. Um, but usually they just didn't have any clue. And um, this was not a problem when I was in elementary school because you don't talk about religion on the playground, right? So it was just when I went to a, a birthday party, and a lot of you may have had the same experience. I went to a birthday party and I couldn't eat the pepperoni pizza because it was pork, and then I had to explain why I couldn't eat it, because I was Muslim, and what was Muslim. That was really the only time uh, that it came up. But then as I got older, and I really didn't go out on dates, um, I was started fasting during the month of Ramadan, as many of you might know. Um, for a month out of the year, Muslims fast from dawn to sunset, uh, no food or water. And then, you know, I, you know, I remember going to... Um, going to school and we had health class and the whole class was a film about all the foods that we shouldn't eat. And here I was without any food and water. I was fasting, (laughs) trying to, looking up at these donuts that I shouldn't be eating. And, or I remember I'm like going to, going to high school um, fasting only to learn that that was the day that we had to run the mile for the presidential physical fitness test. Do you remember that? (laughs) And at that time, it was really hard to tell anybody because uh, nobody had heard of Muslims or Islam. So I, I couldn't go to my, my PE teacher and say, I can't run, it's against my religion. You know, he would have said, are you, no, you, don't be silly. So, um, you know, that's when it came up. Still not very much until I went away to college. I went to Stanford and uh, lived in the dorm. And all of a sudden, you know, we're all really close to each other on the, in the dorm, and everybody knows what everyone else is doing. And all of a sudden, I had to think about things like, you know, how am I going to pray five times a day without my roommate noticing when she's two feet away from me, right? I mean, how am I going to figure out if there's pork in the dorm food when nobody knows what's in the dorm food? <laughs> right? And so 
it was it was a challenge. It was like my first interfaith one-on-one experience. Um, and then I went to law school and I started working as a corporate lawyer, and that's actually when I met Erwin. Um, and it was at that time that um, people started asking me for recommendations on Islam. So I had grown up my whole life answering questions. You know, if you're the only one of anything, you answer a lot of questions, right? So, so I'd always been answering questions, but it was when I was working that people started asking me for book recommendations. And there weren't any. There were textbooks, and there were the um, occasional Sufi volume, which were not very helpful when it came to everyday questions about Islam, right? Sufi poetry is nice, but it doesn't tell you much about everyday Islam. <clears throat> so that's when I thought, I'm going to, I'll write a book. So when my husband's job took us to London, I did a graduate degree in Islamic law, and then I came back to write my book. The, um, you were saying, uh, we had lunch earlier, and you were telling me a little bit about the kinds of questions that some of the lawyers in our firm <laughs> would come up and ask you? Uh-huh. Oh, so let's see. Um, one senior associate said to me, why are Muslims more violent than other kinds of people? No. Oh. You know, and there I was in my new suit and my new high heels looking nonviolent. <laughs> and as I told Erwin, it's really easy to ask a question like that, it's very difficult to listen to the answer. And the answers are never as open and shut, black and white, and nutshell as the questions are, right? They're complicated, and it's still very hard. I think it's still very hard uh, to get people to actually listen. So that was one of them. Um, you know, I was at a, at a closing dinner, um, and the partner in charge said, Oh, you don't think Islam is sexist? And again, there I was, a corporate lawyer, and he's saying, oh, you don't think Islam is sexist? And I said, no. And um, he just looked at me very skeptically and sort of went on to take a survey, actually, <laughs> of, don't you think Islam is sexist? Mm-hmm. So so you've actually been doing um, a lot of work over, over this career, over this post-law career on the rights of women within Islam mm-hmm. and feminism within Islam. What, what, what would you like to tell us? Because, because people ask this question all the time. Yeah. Right? It's About Muslims and oppressed yeah. women. Yeah, sure. Right? Yeah. Well, that, what always amazes me when um, people make that assumption that Muslim women are oppressed or Islam is sexist is that they're always comparing non-Muslim American women with Muslim women overseas. That's apples and oranges. Like, if you really want to compare apples and apples, then you should compare uh, American Muslim women with American non-Muslim women, right? And then you see a very different picture. You know, you see um, Muslim women are the second most educated faith group, second only to Jewish American women. Um, They're... uh, uh, American Muslims are the faith group with the most parity between men's and women's incomes. Mm. Um, I think I just read that at least one out of 10 American Muslims are physicians. And I haven't seen a statistic on how many of those are women, but I wouldn't be surprised if half of those are women. I mean, when I was growing up, my dad said, you either become a doctor or an engineer. Like, nothing else is acceptable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which is how a lot of my uh, American Muslim women, girlfriends um, grew up with their parents saying you have to be a doctor. <laughs> so 
And so it's just funny to me. Like, I, I didn't even know Islam was oppressive until I got to graduate school. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, one of the things that I would like to explore today is actually some of the complexity within Islam. Because uh, the public, through the media and through politicians, sees, you know, a very scant portrayal of Islam. And for someone like me who sits within Judaism, I know the, the complexity of conflicts within, of different views within different groups of Jews in different places of the world and different beliefs, and um, the ways in which, you know, somebody can say something about uh, equality of women within Judaism, um, which would sound ridiculous to me. Um, but if I look at another branch of Judaism, I might have the same reaction initially. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious just about um, what it is like for you, what it has been like for you through this presidential campaign. Um, we'll, we'll cut right to the presidential campaign so we can stop talking about <laughs> <Okay>. it. Okay. <laughs> um, but um, I think we've seen a level of um, Islamophobia that we've never seen in this country, although you might disagree with that. And what that experience has been like for you as a Muslim and also as a spokesperson. Well, you know, it's been very interesting because on, on, in some ways, I think what Donald Trump is saying is not very different from what politicians, some politicians have been saying for a long time, for years and years. The only difference really is that he just comes out and says it in your face, right? Here, here it is. And he says it in a very brazen, brash way, whereas maybe the people who've been saying it before have been a little bit more subtle in the way they... But not always. You know, Peter King uh, held in Congress held um, held hearings. You know, he has said outrageous things like, um, I don't know, like 10% of, of American Muslim mosques are, you know, you know, foster terrorism. I mean, just really outright lies. Um, and this has been going on in our, in our public discourse for a long time. So in a way, it's the same old stuff. It's the same old stuff that you hear it's just more, in a way, forthright when Donald Trump says it. And nobody um, really has talked about banning Muslims from the country before. But I can tell you that um, I've heard many times um, somebody advocating putting Muslims in internment camps. So it's, uh, it's not something that is a new thing. The silver lining in Donald Trump's candidacy is that it because he's been so forthright in his, in his prejudice, um, it's allowed a lot of groups to stand up and be allies with Muslims who maybe didn't think of it before. You know, like unless, if it's subtle and you're not really paying attention, you might not think that, you know, this is a good time to, to stand up and be allies with another group. But that's what's happened. And it's been really, really inspiring. And certainly this coalition um, that's represented in this room is a result of Trump. I mean, we really came together because of that. Yeah, and that's Um, a wonderful thing. Thank you very much. So what what does it mean to be a good ally? Ah, that's a difficult question. Um, So (laughs) John Esposito is a professor at Georgetown. Um, He's the the founder and head of the Center for Muslim-Christian Understanding at Georgetown. And um, he says that he has a great job because for the past 30 years, the questions on Islam haven't changed. <laughs> so he says, I don't have to learn anything new in this job. I can just keep answering the same questions. Um, so 
So I think some of it is this, um, it's very difficult because there's a perpetuation of stereotypes that has a very that has many layers and a deep history. So just like there is a history of anti-Semitism in the West, there is a history of anti-Islam. There's Islam has always been seen through the lens of the enemy uh, by, by Western Europeans. So, um, and we can talk about that more if you want later, but, but I think, you know, politicians and media only respond to pressure, right? Pressure from groups. And, Muslims right now are not very large in number in this country. Um, seven million the, at the last, the last uh, number that I read, which is maybe, I don't know, le- less, than, less than 3%, whatever the number is. So I think we need numbers on our side. We need people to stand up with us and say, that's not okay what you're saying. Or, and also to pay a little bit more attention. So everyone talks about Trump as, as such a, you know, bigot, really. But, you know, Hillary Clinton has also says things, said things about Muslims that are, again, they're within that same frame of Muslims are violent. Um, so, for example, um, she attributed the Orlando shooter to radical Islam. You know, this was not radical Islam. I mean, the Orlando shooter was no different from the Sandy Hook shooter and the you know, the, the Batman shooter and, you know, all the other shooters that we have in this country. Uh, it, he was not a result of a radical Islam. So that may not seem like an important point, but it is because it perpetuates this idea that it's Islam that's the reason, even if it's radical Islam, that it's Islam that's the reason instead of just we have Muslim criminals the way you know, there are Christian criminals and Buddhist criminals and all sorts of criminals, right? If, what, what's your list of, um, of stereotypes, misconceptions that you would really like to be done with already? <laughs> well, again, you know, I think I was thinking about this and I'm not sure, it's not really one misconception. So, so here's, Going back to this, this tradition of, of anti-Islam, let me just talk about that a little bit because it's, it's that that I would really like to be done with. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so all religions tend to view religions that come after them as false religions or cults, right? Every, everybody does this. Um, in Judaism, you know, they, Jews thought Christians were a cult. Christians thought... Muslims were a false religion and a cult. Muslims think the Baha'i are a false religion and a cult. And so this is just one thing to recognize. The second thing is that when Islam was born in the 7th century in what is now um, Saudi Arabia, in the Arabian Peninsula, um, at that time, Muslims understood Christianity and Judaism because there were Muslims sorry, there were Christians and Jews and pagans in that area. And in fact, some of Muhammad's relatives were Christian. So um, they were familiar with Judaism and Christianity. And in fact, Islam accepts Judaism and Christianity as part of its own tradition. So, you know, so Muslims accept the prophets, heaven, hell, um, Adam, Noah, Jesus, Moses, all the prophets, Um, But at the same time, Christians in Europe had no idea what Islam was, right? 
So it was kind of a lopsided viewpoint. Um, they certainly, I mean, Christians didn't accept Muslims as part of their own tradition, obviously. It's a later religion. Um, and they were understandably afraid of it because Islam was spreading very fast. So distances were big. Um, there was not a lot of communication. And so this whole body of mythology grew up around, around Islam uh, and Muhammad. Um, essentially, it was a body of tall tales that, that continued to grow. And we inherited so this body, this attitude, this lens, this framework from the British. Um, by the way, I used to hear this word framework all the time, and I never really understood how it worked until I remembered that when I was in junior high, I, I had a book of um, proverbs, and there was a Polish proverb that said, if you um, hate someone, the way they hold their fork will drive you crazy. <laughs> right? Isn't it true? Um, but if you love someone, they can turn their whole plate into your lap and you won't care, right? <laughs> now, that's the simplest form of a framework. So a framework is you're getting in um, information and evaluating the facts of the case. So the facts of this person eating are being evaluated through your lens of love or hate, right? So that's a framework. So this framework, this Western Christian framework that had to do with Islam grew up over centuries. And the interesting thing about a framework is that if you get facts that um, contradict the framework, what do you think gets thrown out? The facts or the framework? It's the facts, right? Absolutely. So when people have this framework when it comes to Islam and they look at me, what do they do? They think, I must be an exception or I must be a secular Muslim, right? Because, because the framework is still in place. Or they think I'm a liar. That's the other thing. So what does this mean in terms of sort of the public discourse when you have this framework in place? It means that, for example, if I'm a journalist and I decide that I'm going to go, or somebody tells me to go um, investigate a domestic violence crime. Now, keep in mind that in the United States, three an average of three women per day are killed by their husbands or boyfriends, okay? Three women a day. So suppose you're a journalist, you're asked to go and investigate a domestic violence crime, but then you learn that this, this man who killed his wife was Pakistani-American. And then you learn that, oh, he's probably Muslim. And then you find out that he actually uh, beheaded his wife. What happens? Does this get treated like a domestic violence case? Absolutely not. Then they start talking, you know, what happens is that it turns into an honor killing. And are honor killings sanctioned by Islam or not? And are honor killings in the Quran or not? And that's what the public discourse becomes about, honor killings in the Quran, when it should be a domestic violence case, right? So that's kind of how the framework works. Um, you, can, you can see it in other ways too. For example, imagine that a man in New Orleans at the airport goes in, he has explosives, he sprays TSA officers with um, mace, something. Spray, something. It was something, yeah, mace or pepper spray. Okay, he, he goes after one of the TSA officers with a machete. They finally gun him down, and uh, they find other explosives in his bag. And he's Muslim. So absolutely, this is called terrorism, right? Absolutely. Is there any question? No. There isn't any question, this is terrorism. 
Now, this actually happened in New Orleans, except that the guy was not Muslim. He was a Jehovah's Witness, and he was a white guy. Was this called terrorism? No, it wasn't. Absolutely not. And in fact, it didn't even get covered in major newspapers. So that is the difference. That's how the framework operates. And so it isn't one specific stereotype that's the problem. It's this overall framework that we're operating within. Sorry, that was a long couple of No, no this, is really, this is really, really helpful. You know, and I think about how, uh, you know, I think about uh, growing up and studying the Crusades in European history and how many of us did and, um, and never, thought to, never thought to wonder whether there was, something, there was something problematic in what we were learning or how we were learning it. Um, what's the hardest part about... I didn't wonder either. Mm-hmm. You know? I, mean, I was told by my social studies teacher that Ottomans threw up babies and caught them on their swords. But that was when I was maybe 13. I, d- I didn't think twice about it. That, that we were reading thousand-year-old propaganda. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's the hardest part about being... Being a spokesperson, what are, you know, I, I, I think about what you do, and I think, okay, you're you as a spokesperson end up having to end up being held somehow accountable. Maybe all Muslim Americans are held accountable for actions that have nothing to do with them, and that they would never countenance. And what is that experience? What is that experience like? And how does that how does that affect you in a day to day way? How does that inhibit your speech or not inhibit your speech? Hmm. You know, um, awareness of my Muslim identity when I was a kid was, was maybe a sixth of my whole awareness, like a sixth of my whole identity. Um, I would say now it's a half. And the reason is, you know, when I grew up, my da- when I was growing up, my dad um, said, never talk about religion, politics, or other people's children. And <laughs> <laughs> what am I doing? Um, <laughs> but so when I was growing up, it was something you kept in your back pocket, your religion, right? You don't, you don't talk about it unless you have to, unless you have to say, I don't eat the pepperoni pizza. I mean, you really just didn't talk about it. Um, and now, unfortunately, what's happened is that it's incumbent on all Muslims to say they're Muslim so that people can see that that's not a terrorist. Um, the majority of Americans in this country have negative views of Islam and Muslims, but the majority of Americans have never met a Muslim or have not known that they were meeting a Muslim. You know, if you saw me walking down the street, you wouldn't say, oh, there goes a Muslim, right? So, unfortunately, it's not easy. You know, if you are in the, in the public discourse or if you are saying that you're Muslim, you become a magnet for everyone's resentment, anger, fear, right? And again, this, a lot of this is stoked by the media. So according to um, studies, people are very afraid of terrorism. They're very afraid of, of being victims of a terrorist attack, even though the chances in America of being killed by a terrorist attack are less than the chances of being hit by lightning, and yet um, there's this you know, very active fear because it's in front of our faces all the time. I can't turn on the television or the, and the radio, right, without, without having my worldview challenged. So um, there's a professor of Islamic studies who says, 
if you're a Muslim, you have to be an optimist. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, so not an optimist, but you know, I, I have to learn to be. And uh, you, know, you do what you have to do, right? You're listening to a conversation with Sumbul Ali Karamali and Erwin Keller. You know, I think, I think um, uh, events like this, but also, you know, what you say about Americans not knowing Muslims. I mean, I think about the rapid change in terms of LGBT rights in this country. You know, the, the fast acceleration of it that was really fueled by people coming out was fueled by all of a sudden Americans actually knew gay people. Mm-hmm. And that made a huge difference in terms of what they were willing to tolerate in terms of public policy. Mm-hmm. and where they were willing to stand and not stand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess my, my prayer would be that, that and, and that might be also a question on being an ally. You know, to what extent should non-Muslims knock on the door of their Muslim neighbors and say, I want to know you? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, absolutely. Um, well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if I would want someone knocking on my door. <laughs> Hey, I want to meet no, the gay guy. No, no. Those, you know. You know <laughs> <laughs> oh, a gay Jew next door. Here I am. Uh, can I just say? Can I just? Can I just say that my very first article that I ever got published was was um, was gay rights. It was actually um, the rights of gay parents. So yeah, it was a law review article. It You're was a law, law review article. article. Yes, and um, and so I, I was talking to Erwin about this. How. You know, in the last 20, 25 years, what a difference it has made, you know, because I remember writing that article and there was no material, there was no, there were no cases, it was, it was hard to find anything. Um, and now public opinion has, has so changed. It's really um, very, very encouraging. And obviously we always have more to do, right? But it's, it's, it's so inspiring. Um, I think what makes the issue with Muslims difficult is that in a way we're like the Japanese Americans who, you know, because the U.S. was at war with Japan, the problem with the war on terror is how do you know when it ends, right? So World War II ended and then then we could be friends with Japan to some extent. I mean, it'll open the door, but how do you ever... um, become friends with Muslims if, you're, if you've got this ongoing, unending, eternal war on terror. That's one problem. Um, the, other, the other problem, like there was a lot of, uh, even 50 years ago, a lot of prejudice against uh, Jewish Americans in this country, right? Um, but then they, so we have that too. <laughs> um, but again, it's against this backdrop of Muslims committing crimes overseas. So it's, it's very hard to separate those things. Um, again, I think we have, we're conditioned in so many ways. So, so when I first wrote this book, I I thought the media, it's the media, the media is awful. It's not just the media. The media is just perpetuating this old framework, right? This old lens, this old way of looking at Muslims. Um, but there's also, um, sorry. No. Okay. Sorry. I'm sorry. I was greeting someone. Okay. Oh, sorry. Okay. Um, Oh, I lost my turn. Um, that uh, media is perpetuated. It was yeah. just the media. It's not just the media. It's also all sorts of conditioning. Now, I, for example, I gave a, a talk on textbooks um, at UC Berkeley has an Islamophobia conference every year, and I gave a talk on social studies textbooks. And um, you know, 
it's like I said, it's not just media, it's textbooks. So for example, my daughter's social studies textbook, this is her sixth grade or seventh grade textbook, um, has two photographs of Muslims in the chapter on Islam. And one is a Bedouin Arab who's sitting, you know, barefoot in the sand in front of a bonfire with a turban. And the other one is a an outdoor market, uh, tattered awning, women in burqas, lots of sand. Those are the only two photographs in this chapter on Islam and Muslims. Reading this textbook, you would never know that Muslims lived in buildings. <laughs> um, if they only had to have uh, one photograph, you know, why not the woman president of Indonesia, right? But no one said it's a Bedouin Arab. So <clears throat> it's in our schools. Um, you know, my daughter was also shown a, a, a film that her social studies teacher got off YouTube. It was hilariously nonsensical, basically about how all the violent conflicts in the world had to do with Islamic fundamentalism. I mean, it was just ridiculous. Mm. So these things are perpetuated in our schools. They're um, perpetuated in arts and culture. So for example, oh, I have to tell you. So um, we were in Spain several years ago and my husband said, oh, you have to come and see this painting. And I said, no, wait, I'm doing this. And he said, no, no, now you have to come and see this painting. So he dragged me over to see this painting. And the painting was, um, it, it was the, the torture and ascension of St. Vincent. Okay, so St. Vincent was tortured by a Roman governor, but then he ascended to, to um, sainthood, right? This was a third century event, right? So this was a... a Renaissance painting by Thomas Hinay depicting um, Saint Vincent in the third century. And, and, and in the photo, in the, sorry, in the painting, Saint Vincent is standing up and he's got his foot on the Roman governor um, who was torturing him, and the Roman governor is, is on the ground. Now, what's interesting about this painting is that Thomas Hinay decided to depict the Roman governor as a Muslim. So there he is in his pointy shoes and his turban, <laughs> dark skin. Um, because, why? Because it's just so much easier to make Muslims the enemy, right, than other kinds of people. The, even more interesting is, remember, this is a third century event. Islam was not even in the world until 400 years later. So it's totally an anachronism. So, so that's, it's part of our culture, right? It's part of our arts and culture. Um, the Song of Roland. Have you ever read The Song of Roland? Do you guys all, who knows The Song of Roland? It's an epic poem. There you go. It's an epic poem uh, written in the 11th century about an 8th century event. And it's written about Roland, the nephew of Charlemagne. And Charlemagne um, <clears throat> talks about how Roland and his 20,000 uh, men were set upon by treacherous Muslims and killed, even while Roland was in the midst of, of um, negotiations. Again, what's interesting about this is that in the actual 8th century event, it wasn't um, Muslims who set upon Roland, it was Christian Basques who were really upset with Charlemagne for having pillaged their town of Pamplona. Uh, but again, 11th century poet, eh, we'll just put Muslims in instead because they just make for a better enemy. So, you know, what happens when it's, it's in textbooks and in arts and culture and media. You, you get this conditioning from all different directions. I mean, we see it in, in film and television all the time Absolutely. now, right? That mm -hmm. you think about who are, who, it used to be when we were younger that, that 
Nazis and then Russians were the people, were the villains that were, that you could accept as not human, right? Mm -hmm. That simply they could be (laughs) killed or, you know, that they they were some kind of representation of pure evil. And now, um, you know, as soon as you see a Muslim in some movie, you know that that's how they're going to be used. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, and we see that constantly. Um, Unless the only good Muslims are the non-practicing secular Muslims. So that's something to, so every so often someone will say, oh no, they have a good Muslim in that movie or in that book or in that television. But no, it's usually a non-practicing secular Muslim that evil ones go around carrying Qurans under their arms. So, so you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull us off of the world arena for a moment because it's, it's upsetting me. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. No, no. Uh, I, if you were not the one to create the framework. Um, so interesting, though, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I, I, I want us to talk almost for a minute, if we could, as if that framework weren't there. Okay. And you and I were sitting here getting to know each other. And, and I were to say, ah, oh, you know, I don't know so many Muslims. Tell me about your religious life, because I see that you're a lawyer, and I see that you don't look like depictions I've seen before, so I'm really interested, <laughs> uh-huh. which I have no judgment about because this framework doesn't exist. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But I'd like to know, sort of tell me, tell me the joy of, of being, uh, of your life as a Muslim and what your religious okay. life is like. Well, you know, I... I suspect it wasn't that different from other kids who were growing up in a religion. So uh, my, my, my dad was a professor, and he had a lot of Jewish friends who were also professors in his department. He was a math professor. And it was always such a relief to go to their houses because I didn't have to worry about pork. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So, or, you know, I, I remember before we, we could get halal meat, my mom always bought kosher meat because that was... Um, there's a verse in the Quran that says all the food that is available to Jews and Christians is also available for you. So um, the idea was that, well, if Jews and Christians can eat it, that we can eat it, aside from pork and alcohol, the things that are specifically forbidden. So um, I remember eating kosher hot dogs at Dodger Stadium. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, So I think in terms of just growing up, I don't know that it was that different. I mean, we... I think all kids grow up learning from their religion. Don't cheat, don't steal, don't hurt anybody, be respectful to your parents. In my case, it was also um, learn to pray and and fast during Ramadan, give to charity. Um, And that was pretty much it. You know, it it really didn't, it wasn't that different. When you were a kid, you didn't have many other Muslim kids around. How is, what do you have a community now? And what is, what is it like doing Ramadan in a place where you actually have other Muslims nearby that you can uh, celebrate with. Well, you know, it's interesting because um, I, so my dad came here in 1963 and the immigration quotas in this country were relaxed in 1965. So before 1965, it was really hard to come to this country if you were from Asia. I think they took unlimited amounts of people from the European countries and very small number from the Asian countries. I seem to remember 5,000. Don't quote me on that. Um, but it was just very difficult to come. So it was after 1965 that people started coming here and having kids and raising their families. So I was just two or three years ahead of, of everybody else. Um, so, so when I 
was growth. So, for example, in my class at Stanford, out of 1,500 uh, students, um, there were only four and a half Indians. <laughs> One was half Japanese. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, out of 1,500, that's, that's nothing, right? But my brother, who was four years behind me, knew a lot of Indians. Um, he even knew some Muslims. I think there were one or two Muslims in my class, but I never met them. You know, it was, I didn't know any other Muslims. So it was a matter of timing. And so still, um, even now, most of the American born and raised Muslims that I know are younger. So it's, um, we're talking about how it's a little hard always being the first one, right? The, the first one that people meet. So, um, and by the same token, my kids are a little bit older, and so they're the first ones. But uh, it's a little bit better. I think only, it's encouraging to see this new generation of Muslims. It's only now that I think American Muslims who have been born and raised here are getting to the age where they can be influential in, in <coughs> civic life, right? So now they're starting to join organizations and be spokespeople and try to... You're encouraged. Are yes, encouraged? I'm encouraged to join politics because my my dad's generation. So just to give you an idea, you know, when I was I was at one of these book readings and this Iraqi couple just came up to me and hugged me. I had no idea who they were, and they just came up and hugged me and said, "We are so proud of you." They said because you know we we can't do what you're doing because we have these accents and we feel very self conscious about being immigrants and having these accents and our, our kids don't have accents, but they don't know anything. So we're, we're so happy that here you are, you know, without, you know, you sound American and you, you know something about Islam and you can talk about it. So that's kind of the quandary, right? My, my parents uh, generation had, they didn't want to rock the boat. They didn't want to say anything. Um, so things are very different now because now I feel like we have to say things. We, we have to... Um, I, I'm going to say religion. something about some of the new activism, but I, I want to come back to your religious life, if you're okay. willing. <laughs> okay. I, I do, because it... Uh, because I find, I, find, I find religious life to be very beautiful mm. and inspiring, and I want to know what it feels like and looks like for you. Mm-hmm. But, but we hit this moment of young people doing activism, and I, I, um, I was thinking about... Um, a couple weeks ago at the debate when um, Trump said his thing about uh, Muslims need to report stuff. Did you follow any of, did you follow any of the yeah, hashtag? The hashtag, The yes. hashtag <laughs> activism on that. I don't know if people are aware of this, but immediately, um, immediately what started trending was a hashtag, Muslims report stuff. And I, I just wrote a few. Oh, good. Down. A few, I wrote a few down. <laughs> Hello, I'd like to report a suspicious case of extreme mansplaining happening right now in St. Louis. Um, at, referring to Trump, of course. Um, I'm a Muslim, and... Um, <laughs> no, hang on. That one, that one was also about the debate itself. But here. My mother uses store-bought phyllo pastry for her samosas every single year. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag Muslims report stuff. <laughs> Someone in my house didn't close the cereal box this morning. <laughs> Hashtag Muslims. <laughs> Gremlins 2 is the rare sequel that completely deconstructs the franchise. For my money, it's better than the first. Muslims report stuff. <laughs> there was something, I, I mean, I just, I, I happened to see it that morning and I was so, it filled me with such hope mm-hmm. because there was such energy and humor and savvy 
in it mm-hmm. um, that I thought, okay, we, we, there is a new generation coming up that's going to be speaking in really smart and um, smart and open and um, incisive ways, and it's going to change things in a big way. Mm-hmm. So, I, I hope it does. I did. I did see that. I thought it was hysterical. And every so often, there are um, you know, there's a, a, a website called Loon Watch. Have you ever heard of this? It's Loon Watch. It's um, watching the lunatics, I guess, <laughs> is what it means. It's, it's, a, it's Muslims who run the website, and they're, they, you know, they report on these kind of really wacko stuff that's said about Muslims sometimes, right? And they sort of deconstruct it and take it apart. And um, I was actually on their website as an anti-loon once. <laughs> so <I was> very- <laughs> that needs to be on your CV somewhere. Yeah, I was an anti-loon. <clears throat> so symbol. Tell me about what, tell me about how Islam is practiced in your house. Okay, so um, it depends on if it's Ramadan or not. So if it's not Ramadan, um, I have to just admit that I usually don't get up for the dawn prayer. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) it's just what I do. Um, Except I was really pleased in the last few months when sunrise was really late then I could get up for the dawn prayer. But, you know, I just didn't grow up that way and I don't do it. Um, but I try to pray all my other four prayers. And some people, you know, praying is difficult, right? Because uh, you might be somewhere like here, and what do you do if it's, if it's time to pray? And so when I was growing up, I was so used to being the only one and um, really being limited by my surroundings and my environment and my culture. Um, it, I, you know, I would just not pray, and then I'd go home and pray later whenever I had the chance to. Um, there are people now who, who do carry prayer mats around with them, and, and wherever they are, they, they pray. Um, I myself have a, a real difficult time with the idea of, like, praying at Disneyland, if I happen to be at Disneyland. You know, I, I don't think I could do it. And maybe that makes me not as devout as I should be. I don't know. <laughs> but um, one of... Uh, a young man I know tells a really funny story about how when it's time to pray and he goes and finds um, like the fitting rooms in some store where he is and he goes and prays in the fitting rooms. <laughs> and, and it's very funny. Like he talks about, you know, you know, we bow down and touch our foreheads to the ground and he talks about doing this and realizing that somebody's looking underneath the door of the fitting room. At him. <laughs> but, you know... <laughs> That's how he manages it. So we all kind of have to, you know, balance, like, what we can do. We can only do what we can do, right? I mean, that story, the fitting room story makes me sad, right? <laughs> There's almost, it's almost a literal closet around, yes. being, around being Muslim. Well, one of the things he says is, look, if you don't want us to pray in public and on fitting rooms, let us build our mosques, <laughs> right? Because there's been such a... Um, so many, even in California, so many outcries against mosques being built. And there are not very many mosques. Uh, this is the other thing about growing up Muslim. Um, there weren't any mosques. And so, uh, and, a, and a mosque doesn't have to be a designated building. It doesn't have to be designated as a mosque. But when I was growing up, uh, my friend, my parents got together with their friends and they had, you know, they met in someone's living room. So that was kind of their mosque. And then they... Uh, graduated to someone's garage. And then after that, it was a two-car garage that they got. And eventually, a community center, you know, as these things go. So um, so for me growing up, there wasn't... 
I think what's striking is that there wasn't anyone to ask. Like, if I was having issues with, if I had a question about my religion or if I didn't know what to do in terms of practice, there really wasn't anyone to ask. I mean, my dad was is quite learned in relig- religious issues, so I was lucky that he, he could talk about some of this stuff. But, um, but he had not grown up in this country. And my mom, when she came here, didn't speak any English. So... Um, so in a lot of ways, they, they couldn't really help me. And there was nobody else to ask. And even now, there are not that many mosques within driving distance of me. And I live in a populated area. So, um, and then also, I think the religious leaders or imams, you might call them, who, who came to the mosques, they were not necessarily very learned in their religion. I mean, the imam, quote unquote, the guy who led our prayers at our two-car garage mosque was um, an accountant and he just led the prayers on the weekends. So he, he didn't really know, he didn't have a religious background or a religious training. So I think this is what's actually important right now because it's been shown uh, in studies over and over that mosques help prevent radicalization, extremism, terrorism, right? Because if if there's a disenfranchised, alienated young man and he's feeling really angry and resentful, if he goes to a mosque and has somebody to talk to and somebody to ask questions of, then they will say, terrorism is against Islam. Terrorism, you know, you may not commit violence. But if he goes to the internet, then he's in trouble, right? So... You all know, you all heard the brouhaha about the Ground Zero mosque, right? Remember the Ground Zero mosque? Sure, sure. Yeah. So, you know, that was going to be an Islamic cultural center. And I thought that's that's exactly what we need, right? An interfaith, collaborative Islamic cultural center, because that's exactly the kind of thing that's going to prevent disenfranchisement and alienation. But, you know, uh, and to give a a hopeful counterexample... Um, uh, an old friend of mine is a rabbi in Omaha, Nebraska. Oh. And uh, do you know about this? The Tri-Faith Initiative. I've heard of it, yes. Of uh, a church and a synagogue and a mosque that bought land together to share one complex, to share one building. And that, yeah, people are applauding in the room. And I think we need to be doing um, more things like this um, and um, not to allow, you know, not to allow at least, um, you know, what happened with Ground Zero, the mm-hmm. Ground Zero Mosque, um, to happen in the names of other religious organizations, to make sure that people of faith and people of conscience stand up and say, not only is it okay, but let's be involved. Let's help in some way. Um, so I'm thinking about the quandary about whether or not you pray at Disneyland <laughs> or whether you wait till later, uh-huh. whether you go in the fitting room or not, uh-huh. right? And in Judaism, there was a, a, a Talmudic discussion about when the sun comes up and you're in the tree picking, a, uh, picking apples and, it's, and the sun comes up and it's time to pray. Can you pray in the tree? Oh. <laughs> or do you have to come down to the ground and yeah. the difference of opinion about it? Uh-huh. And, and the various, uh, over the millennia, the, the, you know, the different ways of interpreting um, scripture the different ways of, of interpreting text gave rise to communities that practiced Judaism in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and also the exile of Jewish communities 
exiled Jewish communities into, um, into different European nations where there were different social forces at work also changed the way the religion was practiced. Mm. So that now, you know, we have Reform Judaism and conservative and reconstructionist, and people can find a niche where they can choose the niche where they have to stop and pray at Disneyland, <laughs> or they can find the niche where prayer is done in a different way, or whether where there's a dispensation, or where that kind of prayer is not expected but something else is. I'm curious if you can fill us in a little bit on, you know, what are the what are the conversations that that happen within Islam that we might not know about in terms of people finding new ways to practice, new ways to pray, new ways to do ritual that might be different from um, hundreds of years ago, or might be different from things that we see in the media. So first I want to address the whole issue of development of of religion or modernization of religion, because I think this is um, something that you need to know the history of the modern Middle East, and which is not something that really we're ever taught in schools. You know, I I kind of grew up in California public schools and, um, you know, we don't really teach world religion or I mean, we, we do now, we don't teach world history. You know, we really teach just European history. So anyway, so Judaism and Christianity, as you said, um, evolved and modernized really in response to the Industrial Revolution, you know, because people, things were changing in the world. They, they had to, um, religions aren't innately modern or innately not modern. You know, they respond to environment and stimuli. So. So Judaism and Christianity responded um, and modernized in response to the Industrial Revolution. At that time, Islam couldn't because Muslim Muslim lands were under colonization. So for those of you who don't, people have asked me, what is colonization? And I'm sure most of you know, but you know what that means. Um, Most of the Middle East, uh, India, Pakistan, a lot of Muslim lands were colonized by Western powers, um, Spain, Portugal, England, and France, um, the Netherlands. And what that means is they, you know, they take the resources and send them back to their home countries. It also means, in the case of Islam, that the teaching of Islam was either forbidden or it went underground or it was dismantled. So educational institutions, um, that had to do with, um, you know, like seminaries, you know, just just religious educational institutions were dismantled or they fizzled out for lack of funding. I think in Algeria it was actually forbidden to to teach Islam, um, and and also well anyway. So so you suddenly had um, a lack of education in the Muslim community, and so there wasn't like who was going to be there to develop the law right, under colonization, who was going to modernize it, who was going to, um, you know, educate other people in, in, in um, response to the Industrial Revolution. So it's not until the mid-20th century when these countries got independence that, um, that there started to be movement. You know, so it's only in the last 50 years or so that there has been more development of the law and or more development of Islam and more modernization. And it's in the last, really since the 1970s, that you're starting to see big women's movements, for example. None of that can happen under colonization. It only happens when a, when a country has the freedom and the autonomy 
um, to, to do that. So that's what's happening now. I mean, it's, it's John Esposito <laughs> says it took the West 400 years to become democratic, right? So we have to give all these Muslim countries some time. It's only been 50 or 60 years. So that's, that's one thing um, about the development. Um, by the way, that also has a bearing on Sharia. So this word Sharia, uh, there hasn't been Sharia in the world for a couple hundred years, despite what you hear in the American public discourse. You're listening to a conversation with Sumbul Ali Karamali and Erwin Keller. Tell us what you mean by that. Tell us a little bit about Sharia and what you mean by there not having been it for the past couple hundred okay. years. Okay, so, um, you know, when I wrote my book, uh, nobody was talking about Sharia. It's like uh, the Talmud, you know, you don't really talk about it to other people, right? Because nobody's talking about it in the public discourse. Nobody was talking about Sharia. Um, so so I, I hardly talk about it. I define it and that's about it. Um, it wasn't until afterwards that you started to have this, this notion. I was at my college reunion and this, this older couple who were there for their 55th college reunion uh, came up to me and they said, you look like a nice person. We're really afraid that Sharia is taking over the United States. My Stanford reunion. Wow. <laughs> and I, my first thought was, where? Where is it? <laughs> <laughs> Let me move there. <laughs> and and um, I said, we have a constitution. No religious law can take over the United States. And they said, no, well, Rush Limbaugh says that it can. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah, I know. It was very, it was very sad. So anyway, so... Um, so what does this mean? Well, Sharia means the road to the watering place. So if you're in the desert, like you know where Islam was born, that's a good road to be on. Uh, in terms of um, religion, it means the way of God. So it's an abstract term with no fixed meaning. So Sharia is the way of God, but how do you know what the way of God is? For Muslims, they had some clues. They had the Quran. They had the sayings of the prophet. And so they went about developing the Quran, sort of developing in interpretations of the Quran and the sayings of the prophet. Um, in, in a way, guessing, right? Guessing what's the way of God. Well, we don't know what it is, but we'll guess by interpreting the religious texts. So all these guesses, all these opinions, all these interpretations became uh, what's called the fiqh, which is understanding. Now, it's not unlike the Talmud, right? The fiqh, it's, it's, it's religious interpretations on the religious texts. Um, so you have Sharia up here as the way of God. You have the fiqh as something that is religious guidelines, religious opinions, religious debates, arguments, everything. Um, sometimes, you know, if a, if a religious scholar gives a legal opinion, which is a fatwa, that, and other people agree with it, if everyone agrees with it, it becomes a consensus, and it be- goes into the fiqh. You know, so the fiqh is always changing as people reinterpret the laws, sorry, reinterpret the religious texts as they um, come up with new opinions and new debates and new arguments. It's always changing. Sharia doesn't change because it's the way of God. Mm-hmm. But fiqh always changes. So it's very old, right? The fiqh is old. It, it, parts of it are outdated. Um, so Sharia... Of course, the way that it's used in the American public discourse is a scary thing. Is it's you know it's really used to mean 
these kind of draconian crimes or punishments, right? Um, stoning women to death and um, for adultery and cutting off hands. That's characterized as Sharia. Um, it's not. So Sharia, that's really sort of isolated punishments out of the fiqh. Are you guys all following me? I know this is a little... Yeah. Okay, yeah. good. Good. Okay. Um, Sharia was sometimes the Quran and the Sunnah, the deeds of the Prophet, sometimes that is is defined as Sharia, or Sharia is defined as just the Quran and the words of the Prophet. Sometimes it's defined as the Quran, the words of the Prophet, and the fiqh, the religious interpretations. But that is just another word for Islam, right? There's nothing in Islam except for the Quran, the words of the Prophet, and the fiqh. So Sharia as a system of law, um, what how it worked is that if you were, if, if Erwin and I had an argument, um, then we would go to our local mufti. And the mufti would look at religious interpretations and, and books of fiqh and, and come up with uh, some sort of a response or some sort of a solution to our argument. And since Erwin and I had to live in the same community, it tended to be not a winner-take-all kind of a solution. It tended to be a mediated compromise kind of a solution. Uh, this happened all over uh, Muslim lands where people would go to their local muftis and, and the mufti would say, okay, this is how you're going to solve your problem. Now, the judges, when they wanted to, um, when they had some sort of a, a case to adjudicate and they wanted um, a solution, they would go to the muftis and say, okay, what do you have on these kinds of issues? And the judges would take the, the scholarship from the muftis. So what you ended up with was a very pluralistic system because you had um, a lot of different solutions on the same fact pattern, right? A lot of, the muftis would say a lot of, and plus it was adaptable over cultures because the solutions that these muftis came up with depended on where these people were and what cultures were operating. So th that system which was an adaptable, pluralistic legal system, was dismantled under colonization because, for example, the British went to India and said, we don't like this legal system. And so what we're going to do is make you codify it. So what happens when you codify a lot of case law? It becomes rigid, right? It doesn't change. It becomes statutes and it becomes enforceable. Sharia was not enforceable before that. Um, it becomes inflexible. And so, uh, and this happened all over the Muslim world. In India, also in the Ottoman Empire, they tried to codify the Sharia. Oh, the other thing that happens is that all the nuances get left out, right? Because it's like, it's like you're summarizing the law into a code. And oftentimes what gets left out is women's rights because it's men who are, you know, in the 19th century codifying um, the case law. So anyway, so that as a system, Sharia as a system has not been around since colonization, um, there's no, Sharia is not the law of the land anywhere in, in the world. People tend to think Iran and Saudi Arabia operate under Sharia. It's, it's not true. Saudi Arabia is mostly cultural tribal law. Um, Iran has a civil code and a constitution that dates back to the 1930s. Um, and what they've done is they've taken provisions, mostly punishments, that they think sound Islamic and tacked them onto their civil code. It's, it's not Sharia. It's, so. so, and who is doing, the, so since, um, you know, since the 1950s, who is doing that work? Is it in the hands of 
Are there scholars doing this, uh, individuals, um, uh, clergy, lay people? Who's, who are the people that are making new fiqh? Mm-hmm. So like Al-Azhar is one of the big, um, possibly the oldest university in the world, um, it's, it's one of two contenders for being the oldest university in the world. So that is not as independent as it used to be. It's now kind of, it was co-opted by the state. But um, still, that's where a lot of the scholarship takes place. Um, there are schools like Al-Azhar in different parts of the world. Um, and there are, you know, so, so a lot of these Islamic scholars, they go to traditional centers of learning. But, but... You know, now they are starting to say, well, you know, we have a different world. So how are we going to respond to this this new modern world? Not unlike probably what happened in Judaism and Christianity. Um, in terms of women's rights, what's very interesting is that, you know, in Iran, f- women who were fighting for women's rights were always dismissed because, because um, and they said, this is probably what, maybe 50s, 60s? You know, they said, oh, no, you know... You're just trying to ape the West. Um, This is just something that's coming. This is not our culture, right? So they were kind of stymied. And it wasn't until Khomeini started really um, limiting women's rights that women in Iran were able to say, that's not Islam. What are you doing? And so their feminism was a response to Khomeini instead of something that was coming out of the West, is that interesting? So Khomeini opened the door to, to Muslim feminists in Iran. I've been, like, spellbound listening to you. I forgot all these people were here. <laughs> and I'm afraid, I was, I'm afraid that oh my if gosh. we don't open this up for yeah. some um, questions from the audience, we're not going to get to do that. So is there anyone that would like to ask a question? Uh, that has to do with the word Daraba. And um, it's interpreted variously as to put someone away from you or to hit them. And I wondered what your idea of that phrase is in the Quran and, and in legality. Uh, yeah, so, you know, Daraba has over 25 different meanings. Um, <clears throat> there's a There's a... I don't really want to get into the legalities of it because I think it would be really boring, but I discuss it at length in my book. Uh, Essentially, you know, um, if something has 25 different meanings, there are all kinds of interpretations, right? Um, In fact, the Quran is, you know, it's in classical Arabic, so it's not, it's not um, something that people speak anymore. It's not, um, you know, a native Arabic speaker is not going to understand the Quran without footnotes and explanations. So, and in fact, even at the time of the Quran, there were lots of variant readings of various uh, verses. So, um, so even though the Quran, the words itself haven't changed, there is a question over what the words meant in the particular historical context. Maybe uh, you could speak to what are the competing pressures around interfaith connection in organized Muslim communities, Muslim religious communities right now in the U.S.? Well, you know, there's a, a joke. One person um, says, I don't belong to any 
organized religion and the other person says, oh, we'll become a Muslim because we're the most disorganized religion there is. <laughs> no, about co- sort of the competing pressures uh-huh. in, in sort of uh, interfaith work for Muslim Americans uh, or Muslim American religious institutions around connecting versus, you know, sort of mm-hmm. holding your own space. Mm-hmm. So, yeah... So I think, so just from my personal experience, um, I'm not involved in any interfaith groups because I guess I've never been asked to join, <laughs> um, but, I, but I get asked to do things like this. And so I'm kind of sort of just on my own. I know some of the big mosques um, have, like there's a, there's a Islamic cultural center in Oakland. There's... Um, the Muslim Community Association in Santa Clara, they have much more organized uh, departments and where people would respond, and they do do interfaith work already. And, and so they would um, be more equipped. Maybe the mosque in Santa Rosa is just very small. It's very small. Yeah, and, the, and nobody works there um, full-time. Um, you know, not just interfaith, but when, I, when my kids were small and I wanted to take them to a mosque, there was hardly any um, program for families, like you know, not not even interfaith, but just for Muslims. You know, there was hardly so we, any program. So we shouldn't take it personally no. in our in <laughs> our in our non-Muslim fragility. No, no, absolutely not. And and I think you know part of the the problem is that you know typically in mosques, um, in say in India where my dad grew up. You know, it was just the men who went to the mosque and they only went on Fridays and they went to pray and that was it. So it wasn't like, I mean, I was always envious of churches because they had, you know, you could all go as a family. And and I read all kinds of books where people were sitting in pews together and then singing. And we never had anything like that at a a mosque. So I only went to a mosque really, um, well, after we graduated from the two-car garage to a community center, I, I went. For a while, there was a, a little Sunday school that was run by parents. I went to there, but usually it's only the um, holiday prayers on Eve is when is when tons of people show up, and the rest of the time they don't because they. they I think the bigger mosques are trying to develop programs, kind of along the lines of synagogues or churches, but um, traditionally that's not what happens at a mosque. Traditionally, it's just a place where people go and pray. And where the, where the prayers are held. Or, or like in, for example, in Istanbul, there are mosques all over the place. And so when the azan, which is the call to prayer, uh, rings, when you hear it, people just drop what they're doing and go pray and then go back to what they were doing. So it's, it's, it's a different um, model. I, I think... <sighs> Some of the organizations, there are other organizations, not mosques, that are better at interfaith work. So the Council on American-Islamic Relations does a lot of work. There is, um, in Southern California, there's MPAC, which is the Muslim Political Affairs Committee. Um, there are lots of little organizations in the Bay Area, the American Muslim Voice. So Dang, right. yeah. I think that's maybe the way to go. Okay. Hi. Uh, I have not read your book, but I would like to know, um, because I have been in um, Egypt and Arabia and um, seen, as I was riding on a bus, men in the fields, like, um, buying in the middle of their uh, 
agricultural times, um, praying. And I was wondering, is there um, a different prayer for each time of the day, a certain kind of day? Is it, is it, an, is it attached to nature in any way? Because you said about the dawn prayer. And mm -hmm. so there are very specific prayers, not just you go to pray. Mm -hmm. Because uh, that can be a very personal thing. Uh -huh. And I'm just wondering if you could tell us something. Sure. So um, the day is divided into five periods. And... Uh, one of one of each period is for a prayer. The dawn prayer is very short, maybe because they know people are sleepy, so it's it's the shortest of the prayers. You bow down twice. Um, they, there's early afternoon, late afternoon, sunset, and nighttime. During Ramadan, there are extra prayers that that take place after you um, break your fast at sunset. There are extra prayers, and but. Um, so the, the prayer times vary depending on where the sun is. So, right, so <laughs> when I lived in England in the winter, it was really hard to get all my prayers in because the sun didn't come up till nine o'clock <laughs> and then it set at three o'clock. So it was like, you know, how do I get them all in? So it, And is there a substantive difference between the prayers that happen at different times of day? Or are they the really. same prayers repeated? Um, so there are two parts to the... To the Islamic prayer, and one is the worship part, and then the is, and then after that is the supplication part. So the worship part is where we recite verses from the Quran. There are certain ones that you do in, in certain order, and um, then at the end of the prayer, you have the supplication, and that's where you sometimes you see people with their hands up like this, and that's where um, you can ask God for whatever you want, like please let me get an A on my test tomorrow. Or which is was a common one when I was younger. <laughs> Sometimes it worked. <laughs> um, I, in sixth grade, I prayed and prayed and prayed that I wouldn't have to do my oral report because my fear of public speaking was greater than my fear of death. So it didn't work. We're I still had to give my oral. We're report. grateful you've overcome that one. <laughs> We're grateful you've overcome that one. Yeah. Another question back there. Yeah. First of all, thank you so much for coming. It's wonderful. I enjoy your talk. Uh, coming from a Jewish background, I bought your book, uh -huh. and of course I turned to the last page first, as is our tradition. <laughs> and, and yeah, although I didn't read right to left. Um, I, I love the phrase that we have to avoid the clash of ignorances. It's a wonderful phrase. And so where I'm coming from, I'm very dedicated personally to eliminating Islamophobia, not just because Thank you. Said, <laughs> Um, but I'm particularly interested in the human, the face-to-face, human-being-to-human-being contact, contact, so that we have a reality on each other's humanity, not necessarily in an interfaith situation, because I know that creates certain problems, and Muslims have talked to particularly the situation in, in the Middle East and Israel. Mm -hmm. So let's talk human-to-human. -human. Mm -hmm. So my question to you is... If you were charged with eliminating Islamophobia in the United States, what would you do? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> but it's a hypothetical, so you can also hypothesize powers <laughs> so, that you don't have. So what would I do? Well, I think... Um, I, I don't think there's one answer. I think it has to be a very multifaceted approach. So just like our 
you know, our framework comes from all different areas, right? It comes from arts and culture and, and education and history. We have to address getting rid of Islamophobia and all those um, fronts as well. So television and movies are a big reason people have negative stereotypes about Muslims. Um, um, there's a professor at Jack, Jack Sheehan is a professor who did a study on like over a thousand American movies and found unsurprisingly that 94% had negative stereotypes of, of Muslims. So that's one thing to change, you know, television and movies. Um, people I know love Homeland. How would you do it specifically? So, that's a tough question. Yeah. Tara's is doing a lot of this. Program. Right. So. What would you do? You, you have all the money you need. <laughs> well, I, I guess, well, okay. So, so just to repeat that, um, with unlimited resources. Unlimited resources, okay. What would you do? So I would start putting normal Muslim people in television and movies, like like the Cosby show, right, which changed people's views on, on African-Americans. Um, and there are already, you know, people trying to do this. So that would be one thing. I would change textbooks so that they don't, you know, keep reiterating this, in these, these stereotypes of, you know, Muslims living in huddles in the sand. Um, and That's some primitivity. Yeah, yeah primitive. Um, I would start... Sorry? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, I would start also, you know, there's a thousand years of Islamic history, of advanced Islamic history that people don't know about. You know, my dad, who's a math professor, says that, you know, his textbooks on um, the history of mathematics until recently would go from the Greeks and Romans to the Renaissance Europeans. That's a thousand years in between, right? Um, You'd be missing out on zero. That's right. That's right. So... Um, I would do that. Um, I would also find some way to facilitate more, like you said, face-to-face -face interactions. Um, I think what, you know, what the Muslim community itself is struggling with right now is we're the most diverse faith group in the United States, which is a wonderful thing. It's also a challenging thing because we have language barriers. We have cultural barriers. You know, if you've grown up... Um, in a small town in Syria, you might you have a very different idea probably of Islam than if you grew up in Cairo or in New York. So there's that to deal with as well. Um, what else? Do you have Books. Any examples of programs like that that have worked? That are happening. So, for example, um, Unity UPF Unity Productions Foundation is run by um, Michael Wolf, and what they do is documentary films. So there was one on Muhammad that was that aired on PBS. There's a new one called The Sultan and the Saint, which is about a Muslim leader and a Christian leader during the Crusades. They're all documentaries. There's um, one called Prince of Slaves, which is about a, a, a Muslim prince, a real prince, who was taken into slavery in the United States. And he kept telling people, but I'm a prince. And nobody believed him, of course. So there are organizations working on this. There's um, Islamic Scholarship Fund, which gives money to um, students who are majoring in something other than medicine or engineering. <laughs> in the social sciences, filmmakers. So so there's, you know, it, it's going to take a long time. Um, there are... 
well, it's, it's going to take a long time, but, but I see it, I see it happening, you know, in, in a lot of different venues. We're. Can I just yeah. actually, before I answer more questions, I wanted to just say, um, so when I was writing my first book, cause it, it, it sort of continues the answer to your question. When I was writing my first book, I had a lot of teachers come up to me, actually, and say, you know, we have to teach world religions in seventh grade, and there's nothing age-appropriate out there, and so could you please write something? So that's why I wrote my second book. And this one, you know, it's the subtitle is The Quran, the Media, and that veil thing. So a lot of it has to do with the media. The second book, um, which is ages 10 and up, but really is for any age, um, it was it was a pleasure to write it because um, I didn't have to deal with the media. You know, it's it's for ages ten and up, so I didn't have to deal with all the baggage that comes with mm. you know talking about Islam. I could just I could just talk about what do Muslims eat? You know, right. <laughs> what how do Muslims so Islam pray? for beginner's mind? Yeah, and you know, assuming that they hadn't run into it. So I have recipes, you know, Eid recipes in my second book. Mm. So it was um, it was really. Kind of a, a, it was a fun book to write. Can I just tell my story of my cover? Yes. Okay, I have to tell you guys this story. Uh, maybe I need to stand up. Okay. Sure. So this is this is my book. Yeah. Everybody see my book? She's still in the frame. She's in the frame. Okay. That's okay. I'll sit down. So right, this is my book. So for those of you who don't know, um, the author has no control over the title and the cover, <laughs> and so it's. As an author, all you can do is pray that they don't do something really stupid, right? And um, a friend of mine actually is an Islamic studies professor, and he wrote a book that was a biography of Muhammad. And when he saw the hardcover, he realized they had put a Sikh temple on the cover of his, of his book. <laughs> like, we thought it was a mosque. So, <laughs> so you just have to pray. So I didn't... I had suggested The Muslim Next Door to my publisher, and they, they tried it out, and they... Um, and they tried it out on people, and the reaction they got was, <gasps> the Muslim next door? Wow. <laughs> too wow. scary. So it's like, oh, this is too scary. We can't, we can't have that as the, as the title. So then there was silence for a long time, and they would say things to me like, do you have any abstract Middle Eastern patterns you can send us? <laughs> I thought, oh, no. I said, please don't put a woman in a burqa on the cover of my book. <laughs> so finally, they... Um, they they called, my publisher called me and said, okay, we're sending you the cover and the title right now. Open it up while we're talking to you on the phone. So I went to my email and I opened up the image and it was, and it was exactly this image, this title. It now had a subtitle, the Quran, the media, and that veil thing. And the same cover, except with someone else. It's true. It's true. And I said, who's she? And they said, oh, she represents all Muslim women. And I said, but who is she? And he said, oh, I don't know. You know, she, we got her from a stock photography website. So I said, okay, so she's probably not Muslim, but she represents all Muslim women? And he said, oh, yes, because she was so warm and inviting and she had dark curly hair. We just really liked the way she looked and we think it'll sell the book. And I said, okay, huh. Uh, maybe I'm being too sensitive. I thought maybe I'm being too sensitive. Maybe it's good. And so I, I took the image and I sent it to my friends that evening. And I said, well, what do you all think? You know, this is what they're considering for my book cover. And one of my friends wrote back and she said, well, it's nice, 
but why is there a Latina woman on the cover of your book? (laughs) You know, I love this story because I think it is such a microcosm of the questions that I have to deal with, which is who represents Muslims and Mm. who gets to speak for Muslims and what do Muslim women look like and what are they supposed to look like? We need to close. I, I know there are a lot of people now with questions, and I should have started the questions earlier, and I apologize to everyone in the room. There is no one person that can represent Islam, um, but we're so pleased that that you're representing in the way that you are. Oh, thank um, you. So thank you for being with us thank today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'd like to thank the New School at Commonweal for sponsoring this event and the Of One Soul campaign of the Interfaith Council of Sonoma County. Thank you all for being here. After the conversation, Irwin recorded this addendum with Sumbul on his iPhone so that she could finish the story of her photo on the book's cover. So then what happened? So I called my publisher and I said, you can't do this to me. There's going to be too much confusion. I'm going to walk into an interview and they're going to say, where's the author? And so I thought, I I can't do this. And so he said, finally, okay, you can be on the cover, but you have to look just like this woman. So... So wherever, so I went trying to find a photographer and clothes and everywhere I went, I took a picture of the other woman and I said, I have to look just like her. (laughs) So that's how I got to be on the cover of my book. Of your own book. On my own book. Terrific. (laughs) You've been listening to a conversation with Sumbul Ali Karamali and Erwin Keller. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.